Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Guy Marzarati in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the film How to Blow Up a Pipeline depicts young climate activists led by two from Long Beach deciding to learn, well, what the title says. The pulsing thriller has caught the eye of critics and reportedly the FBI too. We'll hear from the film's creators and talk about the debates the movie portrays, climate action through the eyes of millennials and Gen Z, and where we draw the line between climate activism and eco-terrorism. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Guy Marzarati in for Mina Kim. The new movie, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, is a fictional heist thriller about a group of young, mainly Gen Z climate activists who decide to detonate a portion of a Texas pipeline as a form of direct action against big oil. There's lots of high-stakes wire splicing, bolt cutting, and chemical mixing, but also debates about the merits of direct action, who's most affected by oil disruptions, and whether they're activists or terrorists. Joining us to talk about those debates and the conversations they hope the film provokes is the creative team of How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Joining us this morning, Ariella Barrer, its co-screenwriter, producer, and actor. Forrest Goodluck, actor and executive producer of the film. Dan Garber, the film's editor. And Jordan Scholl, co-screenwriter and executive producer of the film. Thank you all so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Jordan, Thank you. I, yeah, Jordan, I want to start with you. Uh, this film has gotten really positive reviews from critics, uh, but also some pretty interesting attention from law enforcement. Rolling Stone is reporting that the FBI, the ATF have sent out bulletins warning that the film could inspire actual attacks on energy infrastructure. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that has been an entirely surprising reaction, in part because we have seen uh, more and more funding to go to these agencies, and that is in many ways fueling a sort of make-work type of um, culture at them when they need to write reports, and we are one of the things that they get to write reports about. Uh, but I think also, you know, the reaction to the film has been pretty, uh, has, be, has been has been very intense and has been very exciting and people have really connected with it. And I think that that is one indication that, you know, you know that 
uh, yeah, that, that people are connecting to it. And I think that, that the fact that law enforcement is getting worried about that probably shows that people understand that there is a very large problem. And to be clear, you're not advocating for viewers to grab their popcorn, watch this film, and then run out and blow up a pipeline. Um, I think that the the movie is more complicated than that, you know. <laughs> uh, the film is, it's not only politics that really drives this. You have these journeys of these eight characters involved in this operation. Forrest Goodluck, uh, you play Michael in this film. These characters might be young, they might be maybe idealistic, but they're not optimistic, it feels like. Can you kind of tell us about the character you play, Michael, uh, and his worldview? Yeah, I think uh, Michael always was really a special character for me, at least, um, you know, from the get-go, it was like long and drawn-out conversations with the writers and and, uh, the director just about what the direction Michael could go. And I think there's sort of a, I think a, a easy stereotype that anybody who doesn't and isn't so versed in Indian country would go to for like, you know, an Indian who cares about the land. And I think I basically wanted to do the opposite a little bit and just make Michael somebody who, when you like basically seeing someone who's given up all hope. Like what are, what is that? What's, what's that person capable of? And I think, you know, in the absence of hope, there's still a lot you can do, which I think is cool. And it was interesting for me to explore. Ariella Barrer, this idea of giving up hope, climate pessimism, despair, we see it in a scene with Sean when he's uh, doom scrolling through his timeline and all these uh, heat events and climate disasters that he's watching. We also kind of see it in the character you play, Sochi. And I want to play a part of a scene that takes place at the funeral of Sochi's mom. She's died during a heat wave. And the clip starts with Sochi's best friend, Theo. I know it's hard, but you're going to fix things. And I know your mom knew that. I don't think I'm going to fix anything. Well, you have to. You're an orphan now. It's like origin story. So how does Sochi go from... I don't think I'm going to fix anything to really being in some ways the the originator of this operation. Yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of uh, the the point of all the flashbacks were kind of everyone's moment of radicalization. And I think Sochi kind of reaches her wits end in the movement as she's engaged with it because these actions that she's taken haven't led to any sort of progress it's it's incremental and it's it's not enough at this rate that we're going and she kind of hits this wall where she's like i can either give every last thing i have to this and see if i can make any amount of change that would be worthwhile and it's interesting because even as she moves forward and she is going to these extremes she still understands that this has to be one part of a movement of many other acts like this happening. It can't be an act that exists alone. It's not a silver bullet. She's just kind of sacrificing everything she has for one last chance at saving something. And I think she's someone that just always has cared about this. She just has realized that she's going to have to take new tactics if she wants to see any meaningful progress within her lifetime the way she would have to. Dan Garber, it seems like millennials, uh, members of Gen Z are well represented in the creative team. How did you feel like in the process that those worldviews maybe shaped this project? 
think a lot of us have grown up with this kind of ambient awareness of climate change throughout our lives. And I mean, I, I guess that is even more true of, of uh, Gen Zers, but millennials at least, I think have been exposed to this since a very early age and understand the, the reality and the gravity of the problem that we're facing. And so there was this kind of shared understanding that the film didn't need to explain what climate change was or justify that it was real. Really, it's starting from this shared understanding that I think we have as generations um, that this is a serious problem that needs addressing. And so the question that we need to move on to is what is the best way to affect change in a world where many people have uh, failed to actually uh, take care of, of the environment and protect a livable future. And Jordan, a lot of the questions that Dan is pointing out were raised and addressed in the book of the same title that this movie was adapted from. The book actually makes a brief uh, cameo in the movie. Can you tell us about that adaptation process? Yeah. Um, so in addition to working in film, I'm an academic. So I read a lot of academic texts and a lot of verso books. And I'd been sort of uh, uh, talking to the director, threatening to try and adapt one of those for a long time. But it was, uh, you know, and he and I and Ariella read this book and we're very excited about it. And it was his idea to turn it into a movie. And I think part of the motivation behind that is unlike so much other media about climate change, this is one that is not Pollyanna-ish. It doesn't just say, ah, we'll figure it out. You know, humans have always overcome. It really recognizes the magnitude of the problem. But then it takes the step from saying, well, because the problem is as big as it is, that means that we need to do something and we need to do something different. And it actually has some very practical solutions. It has some ideas about what could be done. And it has some ideas that it grounds in recent history, right? This it's the, the book talks about the militancy of the suffragettes who, you know, did a full scale arson uh, campaign. It talks about the spear of the nation that helped defeat, defeat apartheid. Uh, and it says that there is this tactic, there is property destruction, which is something that movements have used very recently that we are not using in the climate movement. And so if it's as bad as we all seem to believe it is, you know, maybe we should consider doing that. And I really think that at the core of the adaptation is wanting to get at that feeling that there is something possible, there's something that we can do, there's something that people who are not in positions of power can take, you know, can take power into their own, ha own hands and do. And I think that's really the core of what we wanted to adapt into the movie. And Dan, our listeners should know this is, you know, not a uh, academic exercise for an hour and 45 minutes or whatever. This is a thriller. What was, from your perspective as the film's editor, turning that book and, and the ideas in it into this thriller, what were maybe some of your influences for the project? How did, how did you, how were you thinking about that? Oh yeah. We were completely steeped in heist movies from the very beginning. I've always kind of wanted to do a heist movie and I've also been involved in a lot of very political storytelling, especially in the documentary world. And so this was kind of, for me at least the ideal project in that it combined those two threads of the, the political and then the pure entertainment of a great heist thriller. So we were watching films by uh, Melville and uh, Michael Mann. Um, we were watching the Oceans movies, for instance. Um, these are just such incredible works of cinema, and we wanted to kind of uh, honor the contributions of, of many other filmmakers in making this. Um, it was just, it was an incredibly fun process for, for all those reasons. And most of this film takes place in West Texas, but Ariella, your character Sochi is actually from Long Beach. You have the Phillips refinery there, Valero not too far away. I want to play a clip of, we're going to hear again, uh, Sochi's friend Theo talking about growing up there. Look, when I was a kid, 
Sochi and I used to go out and dance in the rain because that's just what kids do. And every time we did, the rain would burn the out of my skin. I'd go inside covered in little red welts all over my neck and arms. So yeah, you don't get it. So Ariella, tell us about the role Long Beach plays in this movie. Well, so we knew originally when we were writing it that uh, the characters Theo and Sochi would have this backstory of being from a refinery town, but originally they too were from West Texas. But we realized kind of for the sake of the story, it was more interesting if they were not sort of um, originally from where this act would take place and it leaves more room for Dwayne as a character. So we were trying to think of uh, where else they could be from. And I had spent a lot of time in my late teens in Long Beach. And I remembered all of the infrastructure and the way that it's like hidden from the city. It's the the city is kind of built around not showing you how close you are to all of this infrastructure that is so toxic and it's so dangerous. And I remember trying to convince Daniel of this and him and I had kind of done the location scouting on our own on our own time and one day I kind of just kidnapped him and drove him out to Long Beach to show him the infrastructure and I think we were listening to like the Annihilation soundtrack or something because <laughs> I was also pushing that as a score reference and we drove over that one bridge that gives you the view of all of the ports as well as the two refineries and just all of this infrastructure piled up on top of us while this horrific soundtrack was playing he finally understood that like the infrastructure that we were so close to yet it was so hidden from the major cities that he knew that this kind of had to be the story and and how we address it right you have that scene where there's that visual of the refinery right next to Sochi's house just like looming in the background we're talking with the creative team of the new film how to blow up a pipeline Coming up, we're going to dive into the debates about direct action that the film raises. I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Mina Kim today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Guy Marzarati and from Mina Kim. We're talking with the creative team of the fictional narrative film How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Ariella Barrer, the co-screenwriter, producer, and actor. She plays Sochi in the film. Forrest Goodluck, an actor who plays the character Michael. He was also an executive producer. Dan Garber, the film's editor. And Jordan Scholl, its co-screenwriter and executive producer. And we want to hear from you. If you've seen the film, what did you think? If you have questions for the creative team, please share them with us. What do you make of this idea of direct action against oil companies and infrastructure like the one that was portrayed in the movie? Is it what the climate movement of today needs now? or do you feel like it could negatively impact the movement? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Ariella Barrera, we were talking just before the break about the film setting in Long Beach and West Texas and kind of the journey these characters go through when they feel like these kind of nonviolent or non-direct forms of intervention are not enough. Uh, your character, Sochi, doesn't start the film with the idea of blowing up a pipeline. Can you talk about the experience she had, I think it's at a in a university setting early on in the film, with this idea of joining a divestment campaign? Yeah, so Sochi, the character, she is part of a college group that is part of a divestment campaign. And she kind of realizes as she's working on it and as she's experiencing this loss, how ineffective it really is. And I think writing and shooting that scene was a really difficult balance of kind of unpacking the ways that these movements, some of which have been so ineffective, and yet the people involved are all people who are well-meaning or doing whatever they can and sacrificing whatever they can in their lives to contribute to a movement and talking about the ecosystem of a movement that requires all of these but is missing kind of a key component that is the radical flank to give leverage to these movements like a divestment movement. Force in your character's, uh, Michael's case, he has a reckoning with the way that his own mother approaches activism. And I want to play an exchange uh, that they have in the film. Didn't you used to try? You're just a coward, like everybody else. I am not a coward. You want me to sit here and count seeds? You want me to lie down and let them win? How are you winning? Picking fights with men who only come here for work. All right, I'm an idiot. Our conservancy- I don't care about the conservancy, okay? I don't care, it doesn't do anything. What does it do? It makes white people feel better, it makes you feel better, and it does nothing. So Forrest, take us through that scene, uh, the reference to counting seeds, the reference to the conservancy, and kind of just the divergent views that Michael uh, and his mother have around activism. Yeah, I think it's a it's a cool, there's a lot going on in that scene, which is nice, because I think, you know, the, the whole movement philosophy and, and direct action, everything ties together in such a freaking, because we're on live radio, messing, messy way, I think. And I think there's, you know, essentially, like, I think Michael's pointing out in general, and I think it just happens with every every movement that eventually happens where I think white people have a tendency to stick themselves in the center of problems that have been plaguing minorities and women like basically like eternally like just the the struggle and i feel like 
this just the frustration with like sort of the efforts of minority people indians and like action that they've uh taken a part of and then just you know seeing who actually like is heard in these sort of conversations so i think it's really nice line uh that we were able to i think i was just improv it i don't remember Mm. it was such a mess this whole shoot to be honest was such (laughs) a fucking mess sorry no 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 was was there did you did you feel like and folks we are on live radio did did you feel like uh that was you know part of the creative process in filming was there kind of a lot of uh, improv going on in the scenes? Oh, yeah. I think the script was written on the day. Like, I think, I mean, the script was written so quick and then it was made so quick that, like, it was just a dump of messy ideas. And I think that's where the beauty of this film takes place because, like, you know, like, just the idea of this film is so messy that i don't think that anybody should like watch it or go into it and and feel like they can essentially make sense of anything i think i like the character of michael because as like you know indian people you're you're already existing in a world that was essentially destroyed like now i think you know americans are having to reckon with the fact that their entire reality might be destroyed because of environmental change i don't think this is a new idea to indian people Mm. so i think michael's like at least what i try to instill into him is just kind of this mentality which is not everybody but it certainly is something that i grapple with and that like if you've already seen the end of the world like what does this mean suddenly people care like cool you care like you didn't care about you don't care about Indians you don't care about Indian issues you don't care about the destruction of an entire culture and community like cool like the world's ending like uh I think Michael hopefully embodies a reflection of of that idea in that like you know we've seen it so it's just funny to see other people kind of freak out I think right I want to take a call uh now from Barry in San Francisco hey Barry Hey, thanks for having this program, and thanks for letting me uh, make a comment. Uh, I'm a gay man, and I've lived in San Francisco for 30-plus years, and I wanted to remind the listeners and the people talking and making that made the movie that I commend you for this, because years ago, when the government in the United States ignored the death of thousands and thousands of us from HIV, we had to act we had to act up ourselves we had to actually take to the streets and we had to take things into our own hands and create our own networks of care and force the government to change to respond to the people that elected them and i think this movie brings up a very important topic which is the exasperation that every one of us feel older people and younger people too we elected people and they did nothing to stem the destruction of our environment. They were in cahoots with those that were giving them money. So I love the idea of this movie, and I commend you for bringing it up and having a conversation in direct action. Because increasingly, I think people in the United States are frustrated with our politicians because of their inactivity, and they want to do something themselves to change things, to make things better for those of us that have been discriminated, be they... Native people, people of color, GLBTQ, 
And I just wanted to say that. Thank you for letting me say it. Yeah, thank you so much, Barry, for your call. I really appreciate it. Jordan, there also there's, does seem to be an argument in this film that just awareness, just coverage of the climate crisis on its own is falling short. How did that kind of inform your depiction of the media? And I'm especially thinking of like documentarians that seen how they were portrayed in this film. Yeah, thanks so much for your comment, Barry. And I think that really goes to one of the key issues in Andreas's book, one of the key points he's trying to make, which is that so many of these successful social justice movements have, in the way that they've been depicted afterwards, have been sanitized. And the effectiveness of direct action and militancy has been wildly understated. I mean, all of us came up through the American high school the American education system, where we were told that the exclusive way to get anything accomplished always had to be through absolute, nonviolent, non non-destructive civil disobedience. But just looking at the history, you know, we weren't taught about the militancy of the civil rights movement, or if we were, it was as the sort of unfortunate side effect to the 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 good people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly weren't taught taught about ACT UP, um, and and. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that this, there's a very clear reason for this, which is that convincing people that the only way forward is through an absolute 100% respect of private property rights helps the people who care most about property. It helps property owners. It helps the rich. It helps the people who want to maintain the status quo. And so part of what we wanted to get at with this movie is is get at that idea, get at the the potential efficacy of of direct action as for the depiction of the media i think i think maybe garb dan garber if you want to talk to that i think you have more insight than i do sure dan garber editor of of, uh how to blow up a pipeline there's this scene where you know documentarians uh including sean he's working on the crew at that point uh come to Dwayne's home he lives on on a ranch in texas and they're trying to highlight his story basically as as someone who's suffering um, you know, from at the at the hands of oil companies. Yeah, absolutely. I think documentarians have done such a great job of raising awareness around climate change and many other issues in recent years. And I think the question becomes, what do you do beyond that? And how much awareness can you possibly raise before you move on to asking other questions about how to make change in the world? And I think one thing that I've I've struggled with sometimes working in documentary half the time. Um, is that I think that there is sometimes a a lack of humility on the part of documentarians and other sorts of nonfiction storytellers about the power of stories to to change the world. And ultimately, I think a lot of those ideas and a lot of that awareness needs to be turned into meaningful action uh, on the streets. And that's that's something that ingredient, I think, is something that is often missing. Um, and a lot of documentarians assume that their uh, that their awareness raising efforts will lead directly to change, and so often they do not. And and often it's a very resource intensive way of of raising awareness too. So I think that uh, many people would would uh, do well to be a little bit more skeptical of those kinds of approaches to to major social issues. And I mean, I don't think that we're exempt from this either. I think in making this film. We're hoping that we're contributing something different to the conversation, but notably, we are choosing to make a film and not, you know, simply engage in direct action for the many months we were making the film. So I, I think this is this is also a little bit of us <laughs> attempting to exercise a degree of humility. We're going to go now to Jeff uh, in Santa Rosa. Hey, Jeff. Hello. Hey, what's Hello? on your mind? 
Yeah, um, I haven't seen the film, and this is the first I've heard of it. Um, so I'm reacting to this on a totally cold level. Um, but it just seems like the ends justify the means is the major theme here, that no matter what your cause, as long as you really believe in it, uh, you can basically do whatever you want, kind of a, uh, you know, an ISIS type approach, you know, that they want to wipe out all the Western influences from the Middle East. So they're, uh, it's okay to kill other people. And I'm not saying that that's exactly what's going on here, but it seems like the ends don't always justify the means. And you can create a huge environmental disaster by blowing up a pipeline, can't you? And is that really going to change anything? Aren't the oil companies just going to rebuild it? I mean, I, I fail to see how that this is a really uh, righteous type of a message that's going out here. Um, I'm not against protests. I'm not against protests that grab a lot of people's attention. But I really think that the way the copycat people are out there now, you're just giving people bad ideas um, that, that whatever they feel they can do, like, blowing up PG&E substations, which is happening, uh, is okay to do. Ariella, it sounds like, you know, and thank you, Jeff, for the comment. It sounds like a lot of what Jeff is talking about may have come up uh, in internal uh, discussions among the creators of this film. Certainly, they were voiced by the characters in the film itself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why we made this movie is so that people can engage with these ideas in depth and conversation. Um one of the first concerns that we had when we thought of this idea was like an environmental catastrophe. And that's actually why the characters go through such uh, painstaking methods to make sure that they minimize the oil spill. And also at its core, this is a fantasy movie discussing, or not a fantasy movie, an, an aspirational heist genre film discussing kind of the ethics and morals around like escalating tactics. What does that look like? What does that mean? What are the consequences? Um, and I think I think Jordan and Dan had really good points to this that I want to pass on to them. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate your comments, Jeff. And that, and, so, and so much of what you're talking about is what we wanted to wrestle with with the movie, right? And and truly, I don't think that this is, this is an anything goes approach. What we were trying to do in thinking about it and what the characters are trying to do is figure out the moral calculus around an action like this, right? Uh, I think that so many people who are alive today are seeing the uh, seeing themselves living in a system in which the right of fossil fuel companies to wreck the earth so that they can extract profits is held up and preserved by governments, while the right of people to have a livable future, to uh, be free from you know pollution and destruction, to have rights of sovereignty over their own land, um, and and to live in a world that is in some way going to be uh, a place that they can be. You know, there's a moral calculus where we have to say, why is one of those being being preserved more than the other, right? And if the governments of the world aren't going to do something about it, what can regular people do? So I, I truly don't think that it's an anything goes approach. And it is something that the characters in the movie take very seriously, that we take very seriously, and that we we're trying to think about where where we want to land on these difficult questions. I mean, it plays into this discussion of what public perception 
public reaction to direct action would be. And we have a tweet from a listener, Luna, who says the last thing we need is for the oil companies to be victims. Damaging their property would backfire. It's part of a discussion that plays out in an early conversation in the film between Sochi uh, and Sean. Let's take a listen to that. Sabotage is messy. We can't give the public a reason to invalidate us. What about destroying like a coal truck route or damaging roads? That's lame. We have to do something that would scare people. (laughs) What? Do you want to like kidnap an oil exec or blow up a private jet? What? We have to show how vulnerable the oil industry is by hitting something big like a refinery. Jordan, talk about Sean's voice at this point in the film. I guess it's kind of a skepticism of tactics that we also hear at other points uh, in the film from Alicia. Yeah, I mean, th- this is something to be worried. The I'm, I'm sorry, I missed the name of the listener who tweeted. This is absolutely something to be worried about. This sort of blowback is something to be worried about. Um, but again, I think I think we should look at a couple of things. One is the historical record, and if we, you know, if we look at for again, again, for instance, the suffragettes, right? They were burning down tea shops. They were letter, you know, they were burning down. Da- they this was systematic arson, and there absolutely was blowback. But it was also absolutely a part of a successful movement. There was a radical fringe that made the moderates look more reasonable, right? That's one historical example. We can't say that that's going to apply to now. But I think looking to concrete evidence from the past is really important. Um, On the other hand, you know, we're also living in a situation in which even the venues to peaceful protest are becoming criminalized, right? I'm thinking of in Louisiana, um, where water protectors were fighting the Bayou Bridge pipeline, which would have connected LA, uh, Louisiana refineries to the Dakota Access Pipeline. You know, there, 25% of local sheriff's deputies were given permission to work as private security for the energy company. They did this when they were off the city's clock. They were being paid by the energy company, but they still wore their police uniforms and they still arrested people, right? You have to ask then, what side is the law on, right? In Louisiana, this is one of the many states in this country who've passed critical infrastructure laws, which make simply trespassing on energy company land, including for peaceful protest, a felony, that is um, that is punishable by, for, by five years in prison. And so the, the point that I'm trying to make around that is when the avenues, you know, there's the blowback is already here. The ways that we are being told we are supposed to protest are being criminalized, right? And so it's no wonder then that people might feel that they need to act outside of a system that is telling them there's nothing that they can do. Uh, in North Dakota, where more you know, criminal penalties have been put in place if you impede with the construction of uh, or repair of infrastructure, even in a nonviolent way. We're with the creative team of the new film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Guy Marzarati in for Mina Kim. And we're talking today with the creators of How to Blow Up a Pipeline. We're talking about the debates that the film raises about uh, eight climate activists. They're taking aim at oil operations in West Texas. They're grappling with everything from faulty wiring to the moral questions of who will be harmed by their bombing. We're getting back into this discussion of terrorism, eco-terrorism, and activism. It's something that the characters themselves grapple with uh, in one of the, I would say, best scenes of the film. They're sitting together in a room uh, kind of discussing how the actions that they're planning might be perceived by the public. We're going to play a cut of this discussion now. (laughs) Answer the question. Do you feel like a terrorist? I feel like a terrorist. Of course I feel like a terrorist. We're blowing up a Pipeline. They're gonna call us terrorists. No, they're I'm gonna just... call us revolutionaries or game changers. <laughs> no, they're gonna call us terrorists because we're doing terrorism. Who cares what they call us? I ain't hurt nobody. Arielle, it seems like this scene is kind of at the heart of the question that the, the film is raising. Tell us about uh, the filming and the takeaways from this scene. Uh, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and I think it's because in a lot of the writing process, the question that we were asking was, what would this look like if it were us and our friends that did this? And a lot of our just real-life conversations around how we felt about this, how we feared we'd be seen, how we hoped we'd be seen, were things that we just kind of got to put into the scene. And one thing that we kind of all agreed on was if this were us and our friends going out and doing this tomorrow, realistically, we would be a bunch of idiots who get really drunk the night before and have fun because at the core of movements like this and of like a fight for humanity, there's still joy and community and acceptance at the center of it. Like people will always find the joy and the humor in these things that they do. And we wanted to just show how these people are at the end of the day, a bunch of humans, some kids that are getting together to act on something that they believe in and they are scared and they feel complicated, but they're passionate and they're willing and they're sacrificing everything to go forward with this. And that scene ends with this discussion about the impact uh, of the group's plan. The characters are kind of grappling with who would be affected by this if the plan to ultimately blow up a pipeline is carried out. Uh, Let's hear that. No, but for we should acknowledge that what we're doing is actually going to hurt a lot of people. It's not going to hurt anyone. We're not hurting anyone. We're spiking oil prices. Revolution has collateral damage. Yeah, but who's the collateral? You want to burn it down in an hour? It takes like a lifetime to build something new. Jordan Scholl, screenwriter, executive producer uh, of the film. This debate about a just transition away from fossil fuels, it carries a lot of importance in California, right? We have places like Kern County, Solano County, where fossil fuel workers are making a lot more than average workers in the state. They're getting union benefits. All these things that progressives who align themselves with climate action say that they're for. So I guess the question is balancing this economic justice if pipelines are getting blown up. How how do you think about that question? Yeah, uh, this is absolutely a difficult question. This is one of the you know one of the many complicated things that's at issue. And and I will say you know we are we are not policymakers. We do not have the answers to these. Um, but we also have to understand that like what is what is driving this 
what is what is driving the fossil fuel industry to be so profitable besides government subsidies of a form of energy that's actually more expensive than renewables right now is that people are investing in it right and so part of the theory of what these people are trying to do and part of the theory of andreas's book is not only are you actually directly disrupting um the the operations of the fossil fuel industry but you're making you're making it less inviting to investors right Many of these projects are extremely capital intensive. Offshore oil rigs are, are cost a lot to get set up. These pipelines are extremely expensive. Um, many of them take 20 or 30 years to recoup the, the money that gets put into them. And if investors don't think that the mass of people who are upset about climate change, who are upset about pollution, who are upset about their right to the future being taken away by the fossil fuel industry, if investors don't believe that those people will sit aside and let this thing run for 30 years or 40 years until it can recoup their investment, they won't put money into it. They'll put money somewhere else, right? And at every transition between uh, 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 industrial formation, there have been difficult, you know, there have been changes. Um, there have been difficult things that impact workers. But I think we need to address that by protecting workers and not by protecting industries that are holding us ransom. We're going to go now to caller Karen in San Francisco. Hey, Karen. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to say that as a activist, since I was in sixth grade, I strongly support young people's radical direct action and believe it is so necessary in our society. The real terrorists are the Koch brothers and other sources of dark money that maintain minoritarian rule against the interests of the vast majority of Americans. And it's structural, it's by design, it's in the U.S. Senate and the composition. Uh, you know, here in California with 39 million people, we have two senators. Wyoming with 600,000 people has two senators. There's a structural imbalance, and we have six unelected members of the Supreme Court, uh, five of whom appointed by presidents who lost the majority um, vote, who are making decisions that are directly opposed to the viewpoints and, and lives of the vast majority of Americans. And it's going to take direct action. So I stand alongside Stop Cop City, um, Tortuguita, all the, all the people taking direct action, because without it, we're never going to change the way this system is rigged against us. Thank you for your call, uh, Karen. Force. maybe I want to uh, go in a different direction with you. This idea that the group sets out pretty early in the film of not wanting to hurt anyone, not wanting to cause any environmental damage, even with this uh, explosion that they're pursuing. What does that say to you about the group? Uh, wait, can you like, what do you mean by that? Sure. So just, you know, I think they're pursuing this plan to, to blow up a pipeline, but pretty early on, they set kind of boundaries for themselves. Um, I guess, like, what does that speak to the motivation of these characters in your mind? I feel like it's, I don't know, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're making a film. I think like we, I think the, this is an interesting movie because it, it sits on the, on the seesaw of creating a film that is, you know, a sort of a love letter to, to the philosophy and the material that 
the book is 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 based on um but then also you have to create sympathetic characters at the end of the day you can't really vote for people who are hurting people unless they're really well written you know like like scarface i guess (laughs) but uh at the end of the day you know it's a movie you know you can't just have like five teens being like i'm gonna i'm gonna like viciously kill somebody and then have the audience hopefully root for them so i would say i don't i mean jordan can probably speak to this more but like (laughs) you know if we like vicious if like rowan and whatever like viciously murdered the oil workers they encountered i think uh we might be making a different movie here well i do want to get kind of into the making uh of the film and the writing of the screenplay jordan and a big piece of this is the series of flashbacks that kind of introduce each member and their motives for getting involved kind of along the lines of what's Forrest saying kind of setting up the humanity in each of these characters alongside the detailing how they're pursuing this plot uh how did you approach kind of that task weaving in these backstories throughout the screenplay yeah so this is i mean this is structured like a this is very much structured like a classical heist movie and essentially what we did is just took that part of the heist movie where they're getting a crew together you know they're going to all their old contacts and they're and they're assembling the group we just sort of took that and spread it out over the course of the movie and i think one of the things that the heist genre got us that was really useful is like in a in a heist where somebody robs a bank, you don't spend the whole movie going, hmm, I wonder if people should rob banks. Well, that's illegal and they're taking things from people. You sort of go with them and you say, okay, these are a group of characters who've decided to break the law and I kind of want them to succeed. And I think that that genre conceit gets us, hopefully gets us at least enough time for people to come in and say, okay, well, um, I, I, I kind of want these characters to succeed in this movie, but why are they here, right? And this flashback structure, as Ariella said, you know, is, is a moment of radicaliz- radicalization for each of the characters. And it says, why is this character here? Why does this person think that they need to do this? You know, what led this person here? And hopefully that can build, um, you know, empathy and understanding for why a group of eight people feel like the only option that they have is to take matters into their own hands and to go and blow up an oil pipeline. Right. right. Ariel, is that kind of how you approach this, the idea of building empathy through these uh, introductions to each character? Yeah, definitely. I wanted them to be complicated people. And I think just because of how current this topic is, the subject matter is, people are coming into it with so many more feelings and opinions. People have so many preconceived notions around an act like this that to kind of make the core of the argument just but could you see why these people find it to be a completely justified act can you at least understand that perspective from their lives and their experiences that was a lot of the crux of the writing of these characters and their backstories we got a comment from a listener who writes i read the book after my 26 year old son recommended it to me was really impressed. The argument made by the author was well presented and convincing. I'm wondering if the filmmakers consulted with the author at any point and what reaction he has had to the film. Any reaction, Jordan, Dan, Ariella? Yeah, I mean, Andreas was a, a constant presence throughout the process. I know that during the writing, he consulted on various versions of the script. He also came to set and watched on the day that the oil pipeline was was blown up. Um, and he was also 
uh, sort of a presence in the edit as well, watching multiple cuts of the film, um, chiming in about how we were representing or misrepresenting his ideas. And he came to the premiere as well at, uh, at the Toronto International Film Festival, where he stood on, on the red carpet and uh, scowled the whole time. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about the set. I mean, this is such a big, the location plays such a large role uh, in this film. To me, watching it, the infrastructure, the oil infrastructure felt so intrusive because it's so empty. There was so little, you know, out there and in, in where you're filming. Jordan, kind of tell us about the filming location and the background, the history of it. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll say one thing just about about infrastructure uh, before getting to that. When we were doing research for this movie, uh, Danny, the director, and I took a trip to Houston where my sister was living at the time. And we met with a, a pipeline expert right? and, and we were talking about this plan where they were going to shut off the, the valve station. And we we're like, OK, you know, where can we see one of these valve stations? And he sort of looked at us funny and he went, uh, you drove here, right? And we said, yeah. And he says, you probably drove past, you know, 15 or 20 on your way. And, and certainly as we, we got back in the car and we started driving around and looking for them, we saw them everywhere. Um, and this infrastructure is something that is extremely omnipresent and that it is, but, but sort of fades into the background as we don't notice it. Right. And that is also, I think, one of the powerful things of the book is saying that, you know, the, the, the mechanisms, the infrastructure of the machinery that is killing the planet is right here. It's right at hand. It's, it's, you know, right there. Uh, but for our characters, they needed to get away from civilization a little bit in order to do what they wanted to do. So we shot on a ranch in New Mexico that had been used for a bunch of old westerns. But then the Facebook built a you know high energy electrical transformer power station there, so nobody wanted to use it for westerns anymore. But we were we were quite excited uh, by that, and you know. There's there's a way in the movie that the sort of many different layers of fossil fuel infrastructure pile up on each other, whether it's the high power lines or there's a there's a coal mine that the pipeline has to go over at some point or the pipeline itself. Right. And so I think that was a way of, of bringing in this idea that this infrastructure is everywhere. You're listening to Forum. I'm Guy Marzarati in for Mina Kim. And we're talking today about how to blow up a pipeline, the movie film follows eight climate activists taking aim at oil operations in West Texas. And we're talking about the filming, the location uh, of the movie. And, and Forrest, I want to come to you on this, too, because there were some really striking visuals of North Dakota in the film. I'm wondering if you kind of describe that and how that came about for North Dakota to be included as, as part of the scenery. Yeah. Can I tell you, you have a very soothing voice. Oh, that's... Oh, I feel like wow. I could listen to you for... For, for months or years. I love I love to hear that, Forrest. I can I'll make you a voicemail after we're done with this. Oh perfect. Please do that. Um I would say I don't know. I think cinematically you want anything to to look good <laughs> is the least you can do for people watching a, a film you've made. So yeah, I would say North Dakota was a was a nice spot. Did did you did you watch the film? I did. Okay. What did you feel about the visuals? Did you get any reaction to seeing, like, why, why, do you, why would you think we would go up there? Well, you know, like I said, the, the scenes in New Mexico that were filmed in Mexico stood out just by how empty the space was. But I'm wondering if in North Dakota in particular, if there was some connection to wanting to display places where 
we have these oil infrastructures where people from out of the state are coming in and working, um, interacting with like the native uh, communities there. If that played a role at all in, in, in wanting to film there? I think for me, the, the pitch was essentially just looks really cool. Right. And uh, we shot there when it was like negative 40 degrees, like the crew was just miserable, which I think is great because when your crew is miserable, you tend to create really nice art. So hopefully our misery led to uh, iconic images. I think, uh, you know, Jordan and I and the director would find ourselves in like a tiny cafe just trying to keep warm. And I think when you have a film that extends its hand out in the making of it to actually affect the people who are making it, I think that's really cool. I think there's like sort of a multi-level like layers of, of like Andreas's book reaching out, touching these people and affecting them. The environment around us is slowly deteriorating and that reached out and just affected these people. And then actually creating the film, we have crazy actors causing havoc. And then we have a negative 40 degree location just influencing the film, I think. If anything, the film is a testament to how many things influence each other. Mm. So I don't know. I think at the end of the day, we could shoot this anywhere, but just where we chose to shoot it, I guess. Well, without you know giving any spoilers on how the mission ends up, uh, I think it's fair to say that the movie ends seemingly with none of the characters really at peace. There's no big reunion at the pizza parlor talking about the plan. Um, Ariella, where do you see kind of these characters going from here? I don't know if you've thought about that and kind of how you approached uh, the ending of this film. Uh, Well, the ending was actually very much the hardest part to nail down. I think we had a solid 20 different alternate endings. We got into a film festival without the ending done. We finished, I think we actually finalized the ending maybe a week before or like days before. Um, But it was just because it had to be such a delicate balance of giving the audience enough answers to feel satisfied without pretending we had the answers to what an act like this would do for this movement or the world. People wanted a lot of larger scale results at the end of the movie. And we just realized there was no way we could provide that because we're not fortune tellers and we don't know what it would do. But all we know is these characters and where they would go immediately after. Um, So that was kind of all we could give. So that's what we gave. And I don't want to give away too much. Yeah, that's, well, I definitely <laughs> encourage uh, everyone to see it. That's Ariella Barrar. We've been uh, talking with the uh, creators of How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And you've been listening to Forum. I want to thank you all, my guests, really, for taking this time to talk us through uh, this film. And thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks as well to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. I'm Guy Marzarati in Fermina Kim. And you've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.